Customer engagement used to be all nice restaurants and tea times. But with Zoom Info, you can engage with the right customers across all channels from one platform. Engage customers at zoominfo.com. Zoom Info, how business goes to market. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, and I am joined today by Adriana Beltran. She is the director of the Citizen Security Program at the Washington Office on Latin America. And um, I'm really glad to have you here. This is uh, a discussion I've been looking forward to for, for a long time. And we've talked on this show so many episodes about the sort of migration crisis at the southern border, the Trump administration's response. Um, but lurking in the background of all of that is obviously very large number of people are leaving their homes in Central America. And so I thought, it's really basically, like, wh- why? Why are so many people leaving and, and trying to come here? Sure. Well, first, thank you for having me on the show, Matt. This is going to be an um, easy question, right? We'll, right? we'll just wrap it up. <laughs> exactly. And... I mean, I would say, you know, there are a number of factors that are behind the decision of families and individuals to um, have to flee their communities. Mm-hmm. Um, one has to do with uh, the lack of economic opportunities Mm -hmm. and the fact that um, you have many um, Central Americans, many families that don't have a secure job, a good job, that are facing extreme levels of poverty um, in their own communities um, and are forced to to leave to seek better opportunities. Um, Part of that has to do with um, environmental changes and the fact that many of these communities have suffered from droughts or from heavy rains Mm -hmm. that have destroyed their entire livelihoods. Um, In other cases, it it has to do, yes, with pull factors, um, family reunification, communities that they have in the United States or in other areas. Um, And another another reason and a key factor um, over the last several years has been the issue of insecurity and violence Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that Central America is one of the world's most violent uh, regions worldwide. There was a study that came out not too long ago that said that, you know, Latin America uh, holds 8% of the world's population, and yet it accounts for one-third of global murders. That's a lot. Um, And in the region itself, seven countries in Latin America account for 34% of global murders. So which countries? Three of those are Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And and those are those are the three main main yes. countries that we're we're seeing. So this is a a shocking level of of violence, frankly, and also something that we're not accustomed to. I mean, refugee flows are things that that happen in the world, um, but we're we're used to that coming out of a a wartime type situation, right? There's civil war in Syria. Lots of people need to need to flee their homes. How did it get to be that in these three countries you have you know su- such a level of criminal 
violence that's that's so far out of the bounds of experience? Um, you know, first to just backtrack and just yeah. to say, um, you know, there's different forms of violence that um, families and individuals in Central America experience. Mm-hmm. I know there's been, you know, a lot of focus on the issue of gang violence. Yes. Um, and we can talk about the history of how these gangs became so uh, powerful within mm-hmm. their communities. And in many marginalized communities, they do exert um, a lot of power and control. And that's what they want. They want territorial control. Mm-hmm. And so it is the gangs that set the curfews, the rules, um, and that prey on a lot of the members of their own communities. Mm-hmm. But you also have... Um, issues of organized crime Mm -hmm. and not just drug trafficking, but different forms of organized crime that have um, gained control of different areas of the countries, particularly areas where the state has very little to no real presence at all. Mm -hmm. Um, An issue that doesn't get covered a lot is um, gender-based violence and domestic violence. Mm. And these are countries that are also facing extreme levels of violence against women. Um, In Honduras, I believe uh, one of the studies that was done by the observatory that's part of the uh, National University mentioned that a woman is killed every 16 hours in Honduras. Mm -hmm. Um, In the case of Guatemala, it's two women every day, and that's on average. And that's separate from sort of gang and organized crime. Right. Some of it might be Mm -hmm. gang-related, but it's, you know, there's very high levels of domestic violence because of the machista culture. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also um, high levels of extortion. Mm -hmm. um, And extortion tends to hit individuals that that live in marginalized communities or um, transportation drivers or um, taxi drivers. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you, you know, own a small mom and pop shop in some marginalized community, you could be hit by extortion. Mm -hmm. And then you lose, you know, your entire livelihood and your force um, to have to leave. To another community or um, opt to leave the country. And does this, I mean, is this pattern fairly similar across Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador? Um, it varies. I mm-hmm. would say, um, you know, in the case of El Salvador, you do have uh, a very strong presence of um, street gangs. Mm-hmm. And a, a, a much of the migration that you have seen over the last several years has been due to um, gang-related violence, domestic mm-hmm. violence. It's a much smaller country, more concentrated. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of Honduras, um, you also see a lot of violence being perpetrated by organized criminal networks, uh, by gangs. But you also see, you know, some um, migrants that are leaving because of economic and climate change, environmental mm-hmm. issues. In the case of Guatemala, I would say that you know, in the rural areas, mm-hmm. um, you see a lot of communities that are uh, victims of uh, poverty, extreme poverty, mm-hmm. neglect, historic neglect on the part of the government, uh, where they also have been faced with issues of environmental degradation. And more on the urban areas is where you see uh, a lot of the gang presence. Mm-hmm. And El Salvador is a more more urbanized yes. country than yes, the other two. Yes, it's much more concentrated. I guess if, so, you just, yeah. if you look at a map, right, you see it's it's small. Guatemala is... Yeah, much larger. R- relatively large. Yeah. Um, so, so these are... Essentially, in your view, sort of two slightly distinct scenarios that play out in in the region, that there is both a sort of agricultural crisis in rural areas and a a security crisis. Yeah, I would say they're different factors. But to me, um, you know, the key to explaining and it goes to your um, question as to why you have this persistent problem Mm -hmm. is because of uh, the weak institutionality that you have in the country, an issue of corruption Mm -hmm. and lack of governance. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and these are countries that, you know, in the case of Guatemala and El Salvador, experienced um, civil wars mm-hmm. um, that led to the uh, killings of thousands of Guatemalans and Salvadorans. In the case of Honduras, they didn't have a war, but were impacted by the wars. Mm-hmm. And the transitions that you had were not fully implemented. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the changes that should have happened to uh, bring about the rule of law, to bring about real democracy didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of the impact of that in countries that are um, experiencing systemic levels of corruption. And I think that's something that um, many people don't fully understand is that if you are a victim of violence, mm-hmm. the likelihood that the perpetrator will be caught is very small. Right. And the likelihood that you have anywhere to go for protection mm-hmm. Um, is also very um, slim. Right. So, right. So basically in a functioning state environment, obviously we have crimes everywhere, but you have police, you have courts, you have a legal system, and people are supposed to turn to those institutions in the first instance for their protection. And you're saying that in these countries, those systems are not really functioning. Right. Um, And just to give you, I guess to illustrate (laughs) my point, impunity rates for the three countries Mm -hmm. um, in the case of, and this was probably around 2016 when we managed Mm -hmm. to get some figures. um, In the case of El Salvador, it was around 95%. Um, In Honduras, it was around the same 95, 96. In Guatemala, where you had seen some success um, in large part due to the work of an international body known as the International Commission Against Impunity, mm-hmm. um, which we can talk yes. about later, and the work that they had done with the Attorney General's Office managed to diminish the impunity rate to 87. Um, but take El Salvador, 95%. Mm-hmm. So impunity rate, meaning just to be clear, meaning? That um, a case is never investigated mm-hmm. and never reaches a court of justice. Right. So that year, 2016, there were 5,278 murders. I'm just talking homicides alone. Mm-hmm. With a rate of impunity of 95, that means that of all those cases, only 263 homicides were investigated and brought to courts. Okay, so you you mentioned civil wars as sort of the, the backdrop of this. Part of what's puzzling about this to me is that, you know, we know that um, there were extremely uh, serious, you know, armed civil conflicts in Central America in the in the 1980s. And yet it's now that we're seeing this incredible outflow of people. So how, how did the situation sort of evolve from the Civil War era to where we go today? Like, what's the what's the connection? Um, I mean, you had, you know, after the wars and during the wars, uh, you know, many Central Americans that left right. for political reasons. I think it's changed in that, you know, the flow of migration during the conflicts were, were due to, you know, the political com- the uh, conflicts. Right. Um, and now you're seeing other factors that are driving people to leave. And mm-hmm. that has shifted also during the year. So whereas, you know, before you had uh, many individuals, particularly men that left for economic reasons, mm-hmm. um, now you're starting to see over the last several years more families, right. more children come um, because of the conditions on the ground, economic, but also um, what is new is also the issue of violence, insecurity. Right. Um, and that's, you know, because you've seen a deterioration over time and um, you have now a growing, you know, presence of different actors. The 
the street gangs, the organized crime, mm-hmm. and the fact that the state, because of the issue of corruption, has not been able to effectively address these issues. And so it's uh, been unable to really uh, provide but basic so, services, but so public security. and Was others. there a period when things did seem to be on track, when you, you had sort of peace agreements, right, certainly in El Salvador, and a, a democratic transition, and you know, were things looking up and then and then went downhill? Um, so we'll take, you know, I guess to explain better the issue of yeah. what happened with the street gangs. Yes. You had a, a peace process. And I think, you know, if you compare El Salvador, um, was better able to move forward with the implementation of certain reforms mm-hmm. of, um, you know, establishing a civilian police force, better judiciary, um, moved along better, I would say, than, than the case of Guatemala. Mm-hmm. And this is in the 90s? This is in the 90s. So the peace accord was signed in 1992. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you also started seeing an increase of just common crime. Mm -hmm. At that time, yes, you had street gangs. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, they were more like kids that would come together and would just hang out. Um, What you started seeing, though, in the late 1990s, um, because of uh, decisions that were made in the U.S., was just a wave of mass deportation mm-hmm. of Salvadorans and Central Americans mm-hmm. that had fled during the the conflicts that some had ended up in California. Mm-hmm. And because they were not able to assimilate, ended up joining or establishing street gangs in California. Mm-hmm. With the mass deportations and the way that those happened, um, with El Salvador not um, equipped to receive that many people, there was no information sharing, they just brought the culture, gang culture, back to El Salvador. So this is in, in 1996. This is they, in the, the late 1990s. Yeah, the, the, the U.S. changed, we changed our laws here so that if you were convicted of crimes in the United States, you would be deported back to your home country. Right. So suddenly it came to be the case that Salvadorans who were involved in street gangs um, in the United States were getting sent sent right. back to El Salvador and this wasn't done in a there was there wasn't like a big program where they they got all the best people together from both countries and worked out here's a plan how it's going to work they just kind of it was massive them. i mean you're talking about thousands they were dumped um the countries were not prepared there was no information share and there was no orderly process mm-hmm. um and so what that led to was you know Thousands of Salvadorans arriving. Some didn't know the country. Mm-hmm. Some didn't speak the language. Some barely had any connection. Um, and they brought with them, you know, gang culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that also coincided with um, a lot of focus on the part of the Central American governments, you know, as crime increased on how do you combat the gangs. Right. And unfortunately, rather than um, implementing policies that we've seen are effective prevention policies that have been implemented here in the U.S. and other countries in Latin America to deal with youth Mm -hmm. at risk um, and gang violence. Um, What they opted for was what is known in the region as iron fist policies. Mm -hmm. And what that means was that they uh, gave very broad powers to the police Mm -hmm. um, to arrest anyone that looked like a gang member. Okay. So you were wearing baggy clothes. Mm -hmm. There were three guys hanging out in the corner that looked like gang members. Off they went um, to prison. Into prison. That um, led to a the huge problem, or contributed to the huge problem that you have now in Central American prisons of overcrowding, of the, the penitentiary system essentially turning into a university of crime. Mm-hmm. 
um, and rather than help address the problem. So the gangs take over the prison system. And the way it was done, it was basically, you know, you either belong to this group or you belong to the other one Mm -hmm. um, as a way of survival. And so it created a huge problem within the penitentiary system where now, um, you you know, you've had uh, a number of murders and crimes being committed uh, from prison, but mm-hmm. it also led to a restructuring of the gangs, okay. uh, made him a lot more sophisticated and stronger. And rather than help address the problem where you, when it was early enough, it made the problem a lot worse. Okay, so you um, have so you have first a sort of exporting of ethnically Salvadoran street gangs from the United States back into the country, then funneling them into the prison system there where they become more sort of more organized. Right. Um, You know, there wasn't any focus on violence prevention on, Mm -hmm. you know, how do we work with youth at risk? I mean, these were, you know, men, individuals that were being dumped in communities. How do you ensure that other kids are not joining gangs? I mean, there's, you know, the U.S. has a long history of work on community-based violence Mm -hmm. prevention, uh, and you've seen it um, succeed in other countries in Latin America, but they didn't opt for that. They opted for a a very harsh Mm -hmm. uh, law enforcement, iron fist approach. Right. And so um, the idea is that that would deter you. Yeah. Th- but that right. we could arrest ourselves out of this problem. Right. The opposite happened. Uh-huh. And so you didn't address the issue, but you made the problem a lot worse. Right. And it drove homicide rates through the roof. Through the roof. Um, and that, you know, I'm just giving the example of a letter, yeah, but you course. saw similar processes happen in Honduras and in the case of Guatemala. So is it a parallel process in Guatemala and Honduras, or does it spread out from El Salvador? Because my recollection is that you, even sort of before these past few years, there's been there's been a, a large uh, Salvadoran immigrant community in the Washington area, for example, for a long time now, um, but not as much uh, from Honduras and, and Guatemala. Um, you saw uh, also, you know, Hondurans uh, being deported okay. um, and Guatemalans. I mean, and the three um, to different varying degrees adopted similar policies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say that in the case of El Salvador and Honduras, they went as far as passing legislation. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just a security policy, um, but it was accompanied by very harsh legislation. Right. Um, that was also, you know, around that time is when you started seeing a growing influence and expansion of drug trafficking mm-hmm. and other forms of organized crime in in the region, which also impacted, you know, the levels of corruption, co-optation mm-hmm. of security institutions. So you, you seem to be drawing a distinction between street gangs and organized crime. And can you explain what, what, what you mean by that? Yeah. So um, I'd like to make the distinction be- because in the case of, you know, Central America, mm-hmm. There have uh, historically been groups, local cartel groups, Mm -hmm. that have uh, been engaged in the um, transit of illicit goods Mm -hmm. that tend to uh, concentrate in certain areas of the country that have control and influence over certain areas of the country and Mm -hmm. that are responsible for a lot of the, in the case of drug trafficking, transiting Mm -hmm. of drugs from South America uh, to the U.S. Right. Um, they're called transportistas. So, you know, okay. they kind of ensure that the illicit good is moving mm-hmm. to the next stop. They're very different than the street gangs in the okay. sense that, you know, the street gangs tend to be in the urban areas. Their their um, 
more interested in territorial control, engage more in extortion. Okay. Have traditionally engaged more in extortion of the marginalized communities mm -hmm. that they control and engage more in um, narcomenudeo, so street-level sales. Mm -hmm. um, could be used by the bigger groups. Okay. Um, but it's the bigger groups that also have greater influence or, um, I shouldn't say greater influence, greater um, ability to corrupt and try to infiltrate state institutions. Okay, so there's a difference between sort of a, a neighborhood-based, sort of territorially focused, locally organized group and a, a more, I don't know, commercially oriented right, these bigger sort of groups, smuggling, yeah, trafficking. That historically I've seen have engaged also in the uh, co-optation or corruption right. of the local police. Okay, because they're working with Right. A lot of money, right. basically. Right. I mean, you're not able to transit drugs through a country if there's no certain level of collusion by authorities to allow you to do that. And mm -hmm. that, you know, can t take, you know, be at varying levels. Right. Um, in the case of Guatemala, if you look at news or Honduras, mm -hmm. I mean, that has reached the highest levels of government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so this is where... You know, we we were talking about the sort of iron fist policies, we're cracking down, it doesn't work. And it seems like today the government institutions are completely overmatched or or co-opted or both um by criminal organizations. And and how did that sort of how does that arise over time? It's varied. Um, mm -hmm. I like to draw the example of, of Guatemala because mm -hmm. they are, um, you've also seen efforts, the greatest efforts at trying to address okay. these issues. And there, you know, it's a mix of what we've been talking about, but they're also, um, and this goes back to our original um, discussion about the conflict and the lack of implementation is because there you saw a morphing of groups that had been uh, created during the conflict mm -hmm. for counterinsurgency purposes mm -hmm. that were never dismantled. Okay. And so they started morphing more into uh, engaging criminal activity. Okay. And so, you know, what you've seen through the years is the ability of these groups, given their connections with uh, politicians, uh, very powerful uh, members of the economic sector, military, mm -hmm. to be able to co-opt the state institutions okay. and engage in illicit activity, but also in illicit activity for their own purposes. Okay, this is fascinating. Let's 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 try to to break this down. Okay, sure. so you have um, government in Guatemala, and you have rebel organizations, insurgent organizations, leftist groups, right? And so you're saying, as part of the conflict. You have, I don't know what you call it, but uh, irregular armed groups are created to work on behalf of the military, the police, the sort of wealthy elements uh, as part of a counterinsurgency strategy. And then in theory, when the war ends, you're supposed to demobilize groups like that. Uh, but of course, people are not inclined <laughs> to just demobilize themselves and they become sort of criminal organizations instead of counterinsurgency ones? Yeah, I mean, politically, but yeah, they've morphed through time and maintained a lot of their relationships, uh, you know, with uh, members of the political sector, mm -hmm. of the economic sector, of the military. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to the weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burrow's furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. Guatemala has had a process where there was an international sort of anti-corruption tribunal organization, something like that. Can can you explain what that was? Sure. So it's related to what we were discussing. In the early 2000s, Mm -hmm. um, what you started seeing was an increase in attacks against um, human rights defenders um, and those that were seeking greater accountability or combating corruption. Mm -hmm. What you started seeing under that particular administration was a much higher level of uh, infiltration and co-optation of these criminal elements of the state apparatus. Um, It was a time also where you also where you started seeing um, an expansion of drug trafficking Mm -hmm. um, into Guatemala. And uh, it was very clear to civil society that the only way that they would be able to uh, clean up the institutions and move toward. Um, consolidating or bringing about the rule of law was with international assistance. Okay, and that kind of started the process that eventually led um, to the uh, Guatemalan government under the Berger administration requesting the assistance of the United Nations to establish this very innovative mm-hmm. model um, to tackle these issues, which is known as the CC or the International mm-hmm. Commission Against Impunity. And the commission essentially has the independence or the ability to carry out or initiate investigations Mm -hmm. into these groups. Mm -hmm. But um, it has to work hand-in-hand 
with the local institutions, local prosecutor, police, mm-hmm. using Guatemalan law and using Guatemalan courts mm-hmm. to be able to bring these cases okay. forward. And that's where a lot of the innovativeness lies because over the last 10 years, it had been able to strengthen the capacities of local institutions to go after these very powerful complex mm-hmm. networks. Um, in addition, it was it was equipped with the ability to bring about or, or promote reforms. Mm-hmm. And that also helped the country adopt mechanisms and tools to go after um, these networks. So this is essentially a, a relatively small, relatively poor country saying our institutions can't grapple with this. And so we need outsiders to help help us. us, But keeping the framework of the Guatemalan legal system in place. So so outside groups can do an investigation, bring a case, but it's still the application of Guatemalan law, right? They couldn't bring the case forward on their own. So the idea is, you know, it gave, it gave them the independence to initiate cases. Mm-hmm. So if you had information, you mm-hmm. could go to them and say, hey, you know, I've got this. Mm-hmm. And they could initiate and ensure that at least an initial look into it was happening. But the Guatemalan Public Prosecutor's Office ultimately mm-hmm. has to decide whether it brings the case to prosecution mm-hmm. and it has to do it. So right. everything from there on has to happen with the um, Guatemalan institutions. Mm -hmm. And that was done as a way of, you know, we just don't want to come here and do the work for you. Right. But we want to make sure that we can equip you with the tools and the capabilities that you need to be able to do this on your own. Right. So so the idea is to get the outside help, but not undermine right. Guatemalan state institutions, but instead sort of build them, yes. build them up because you exactly. you run a few prosecutions, yeah. you get the convictions. And in short, you know, and it also provides the local institutions with that international support because mm-hmm. you're dealing with very powerful mm-hmm. structures, right. very powerful individuals. So having an international institution has also provided uh, support for local prosecutors, for local judges mm-hmm. um, to work, you know, and act independently and to be able to do their um, their job. And so this wound up going after organized crime figures who might otherwise have gotten sort of protection from corrupt officials. It goes after officials themselves. People involved in corruption themselves. Um, the mandate goes after these uh, criminal structures that emerge from the conflict mm-hmm. that and their links to the state. Mm-hmm. And so it's looked at cases, you know, a very prominent case uh, was the, uh, one that um, happened in 2015 that got mm-hmm. a lot of international attention. It was a case uh, regarding just a massive corruption scheme within the Guatemalan uh, tax institution, mm-hmm. um, uh, customs institution that ended up implicating the vice, the then vice president and president mm-hmm. of the country, and he both were forced to resign. Mm-hmm. Um, she has been indicted uh, for other cases, um, and now faces actually extradition to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, for involvement in drug trafficking. And he's, um, you know, pending his cases, starting to move through the system. So the philosophy of this is that to improve the security system situation vis-a-vis criminals, you have to simultaneously improve the accountability inside the state. Yeah. 
it was known, many of these people were referred to in Guatemala as the untouchables. Okay. So if you would ask anybody then, it was like, there's no way, you know, justice wasn't applied equally. Mm-hmm. Um, and justice was not applied to these powerful individuals that could influence the institutions, right. could influence the courts. So nobody in Guatemala would have imagined that a president would be sitting before a Guatemalan judge right. facing accusations of massive corruption. And that, to me, has been one of the most powerful implications of this initiative mm-hmm. is because it did lead to Guatemalans regaining trust in, the institu- in their own institutions mm-hmm. and to see that, yes, you could strengthen your own institutions to bring these untouchables to a court. But so this sounds like we're going to be telling a happy story right. in which impunity right. diminishes <laughs> and, and <it> security <laughs> improves and people are able to, you know, make a good life for themselves uh, in their homes. But what happens? Some, some, something seems to have yeah, gone wrong. Right. So it did, you know, as I, as I had mentioned, help uh, mm-hmm. diminish um, or reduce impunity. Mm-hmm. The work that they did to strengthen the capabilities um, within the public prosecutor's also uh, office also contributed to um, reduction in homicide. Mm-hmm. And I do think it, it, it did play a role in um, the ability of Guatemala to, um, in, um, I think for a period of 10, 11 years, right. reduce the, the crime rate. As is to be expected when you're dealing with uh, very powerful structures. Yes. They're not going to sit back. Sure. And wait for their demise. Mm-hmm. And so they started to push back and started to push back very strongly mm-hmm. um, under the current Guatemalan government. And I would say over the last two years mm-hmm. where you've seen a series of actions on the part of the government and its allies to bring an end to the investigations and to reverse all the progress that had been achieved over the last 10 years. And they've succeeded in many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Part has to do with the fact that you've also had a change in U.S. policy. Right. And where, um, you know, several years ago, the U.S. was a strong supporter of the commission, of mm-hmm. the anti-impunity, anti-corruption work that would be very vocal mm-hmm. in defending it when it came under attack. Last year, you saw a shift okay. under the Trump administration where um, despite the actions of the government to kick out the commissioner, um, to try to close down the commission and other actions, they've pretty much stayed mute. So I don't I don't know anything about Guatemalan politics. Is this like a like a partisan issue inside Guatemalan politics where one faction has come out on top and the Trump administration wants to support them? Um, different things happen. I would yeah. say that if you look at uh, surveys, mm-hmm. um, and there have been uh, several, uh, the commission and the anti-corruption work enjoy 70% right. of support. Mm-hmm. And anti-corruption is a key issue for sure. many. I think there's greater awareness. I think what has happened is the the government took several actions that um, unfortunately succeeded. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was a decision to move the embassy okay. uh, to Jerusalem to incur favor from the Trump administration. Another was the private sector and others paying a very hefty amount of money mm-hmm. to lobby firms here in Washington to try to um, diminish uh Republican support okay. for the commission or, you know, try to weaken that sure. bipartisan support. Um, it also coincided with a case 
um, that involved a Russian family okay. in Guatemala. Um, that ended up getting the support of Bill Browder, who's very was uh-huh. very engaged in the Magnitsky yes. law involved. Um, accusing, without any proof, the commission of being in collusion with Russia. I see. Um, So all of this um, and the use of uh, social media Mm in-country to try to spread defamation campaigns against those that that have been leading the anti-corruption effort of trying to um, tap into people's fear and making this a left-right issue. Okay. Um, you know, these are communists. This is the leftist agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, corruption has no. <laughs> sure, but this is but this is a a, a rightist government in Guatemala yes, yes, at the moment, which yes. is sort of working these angles yes. with the Israel question and right. and other things yeah. like that to help sort of yes. Um, ironically, you know, Jimmy Morales emerged. Mm-hmm. He was a comedian. Okay. Um. But he rode the wave of anti-corruption. Elections happened in 2015. So mm-hmm. at the height of, you know, when this massive corruption case came out, okay. there were thousands of Guatemalans on the street demanding greater accountability, mm-hmm. which you hadn't seen, um, mm-hmm. you know, in Guatemala, just people from different walks of life uh, month after month taking the streets. So he rode that wave of anti-corruption right. you know, under the slogan, neither corrupt nor thief. Uh-huh. Um, but he came into power backed by a party that was established by uh, former military, mm-hmm. uh, many of whom have been implicated in human rights violations mm-hmm. that were committed during the war. Right. Um, okay. I mean, this is, well, it's not unfamiliar to us. You, somebody comes in promising to drain the swamp, and perhaps that turns out not to be. See, you're smiling. Um, but so this is this is kind of situation, right? So, I, I mean, it's this is one of these historical ironies, right? So you have a commission that is working on anti-corruption. It is exposing corruption, which helps a sort of outsider figure come in. But he actually comes into place in alliance with business groups, military-tied organizations, and then starts dismantling the very institutions that were that were fighting corruption. So has there been any sort of comparable efforts in in El Salvador and, and Honduras? Was there like a moment where people said, well, this is working in Guatemala, we need to we need to expand? Because, you know, we, I don't know, we have a very U.S.-centric debate. Right. But obviously, this is like a bigger problem for people in Central America. Right, no, it's And it's, yeah, it's across the region. Right. It's a um, problem of corruption, systemic corruption. Right. Um, in the case of Honduras, so the 2015 uh, protests, mobilizations, mm-hmm. um, inspired a lot of action in Honduras because it coincided with a corruption scandal that came out mm-hmm. um, in that country around that time that dealt with uh, embezzlement around the Social Security. Okay. Um, where some of the money had ended up in the coffers of the president's okay. uh, political campaign. Okay. That led also to what was known as the Movimiento de Antorchas, uh, people that were coming out, you know, with um, lights okay. every night. And it grew and grew. And they were demanding the creation of a CC-like entity. Mm-hmm. Because, again, there is the question, your institutions are too weak. They're too co-opted. Mm-hmm. The only way we can do this is with support from the international community that can mm-hmm. ensure accountability and, and progress. Mm-hmm. There... Um, you know, the UN did not get involved. It ended up being the OAS um, okay. that established uh, a mission. Um, the mandate is slightly uh, different. 
mm-hmm. uh, but um, it was established. Mm-hmm. Um, its uh, mandate ends next year. Okay. And there you've also seen a similar situation where um, the mission with uh, the work that they were doing with a unit within the public prosecutor's office started uh, revealing cases of corruption, mm-hmm. massive cases of corruption involving members of the legislature, the political class, economic mm-hmm. class, and you start seeing a backlash. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, efforts within the legislature to pass laws mm-hmm. to limit the work, anti-corruption work, um, uh, or efforts to not pass legislation right. that would give them the tools mm-hmm. they need to go after these types of networks. Right. So it, if it starts to work, it becomes dangerous. Yeah. When you start touching those centers, you know, of power, mm-hmm. um, criminal power. So to put this in the in the context of the migration, I mean, what would you say is the the attitude of the the governments in place to the fact that so many people are are fleeing? I mean, are they are they trying to make things better? Do they not? really care like it, it it just it's it's like it's hard to get your mind around or at least for me i mean to me a government that um cares uh-huh. um would look at you know what is driving my own people right to feel that they have to leave because they've lost hope because they think that they cannot have a decent life in our own countries and what policies that would require and i don't see um i mean you have a new government in el salvador so uh-huh. you know the verdict. He just started a sure. few weeks ago, so we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but to really um, implement policies to address a lot of these issues, um, how do you strengthen institutions? How do you improve economic conditions? How do mm-hmm. you tackle the issue of corruption? Right. You see the opposite in many ways, mm-hmm. right? Um, and how, I mean, how economically driven do you see these problems as being? Because these are, they're not rich countries, but they're also not the poorest countries in the in the world. I mean, are there economic development things that that could really work or does is the security problem sort of a freestanding? To me the key is the governance and corruption yeah. piece. Uh, because to me those are critical mm-hmm. to being able to really tackle the issue of economic opportunities mm-hmm. and security. Mm-hmm. And until you're able to address those, it's going to be very difficult to really have uh, significant progress mm-hmm. in other areas. There was a study um, that was done of corruption in 2015 mm-hmm. um, by an, a regional organization. Um, and what they found, for instance, in the case of El Salvador was of the cases that they had investigated, mm-hmm. 35% of the education budget in um, Honduras was mm-hmm. lost to corruption. Yikes. 70% of the health budget was lost to corruption. In the case of El Salvador, of the cases that they investigated, um, it would have been enough to buy school lunches and address the basic health services for mm-hmm. 1.2 million boys and girls. Yeah, right. Um, so, when you, me, so when you have corruption on that scale, you can't really— You're not, pro- you're not able to provide basic mm-hmm. services, which include also, you know, how do you improve development programs? How do you really address the needs— um, so, of the population. So the United States have been very involved in Central American affairs for a long time, usually not that constructively. Are there things the American government could be doing, should be doing to sort of help turn the situation around? Uh, sure. 
So in 2016, at Uh fiscal year uh, 2015, in response to the uh, increase of unaccompanied children that Mm -hmm. you had, the uh, Obama administration had launched a new strategy Mm -hmm. um, that led to a significant increase of assistance Mm -hmm. to the region. Um, It more than doubled assistance. And that that had continued um, year by year with smaller amounts. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mentioned it because they did, uh, one of the positive things that came out of that was that instead of focusing on security, mm-hmm. it did recognize the need to address the issue of governance. Mm-hmm. And it recognized the need to address the development factor and kind of provide more of an integral So approach. what's the security versus governance? So security would be to say, like, the police are all amazing, but they need like more guns and cars. Or to say that the problem in Central America is a security problem. And so it requires a security solution. Um, In the past, it had been, you know, let's focus on drug interdiction, on um, arresting the um, drug kingpins, on training the police, on training um, specialized units that, you know, address gangs or drugs. Uh Uh-huh. so a, a governance solution is to say instead— Let's what? focus on how do you build effective institutions. Okay. Uh, I can train 500 police officers. Mm-hmm. That doesn't guarantee me that the police is going to function if they're corrupt. Okay. Or, you know, if you're not providing um, for, you know, better recruitment practices, mm-hmm. uh, better education practices, um, a police career law. Right. If you don't have an effective justice system and accountable, you know, security forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also, you know, focused on the issue of corruption. How do we tackle the issue of corruption? And it included issues of development and crime prevention. Mm-hmm. So understanding that there is a lot of work that can be done that can be effective at the community level to ensure or work with youth at risk, so mm-hmm. at least to provide a different alternative mm-hmm. to engaging in um, in gangs. So this is like the kind of thing we see in community initiatives in American cities yes. where you want to say, yes. we're going to put people in who are social workers and n- not, just, not just guys with guns, but people who can talk to young young men and convince them you could do something else. We can help you get a job. Right. The idea is, um, you know, at the community level, because mm-hmm. communities are better um, able to, one, understand and identify what their needs are. Mm-hmm. But then it's how you bring all the different social services, institutions, local uh, government, police to address those mm-hmm. needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you work with youth, provide them with a different alternative education, job opportunities? So at least they have, you know, they can make a different choice mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. have to be forced or feel like they have to be forced to join a gang. How do you work with families that may be facing, you know, domestic violence mm-hmm. and situations like that that have been effective in other regions? And those are things that the U.S. had been supportive. You know, some were successful than others. Um, They had been, you know, engaged in supporting the CC, the Moxie. Um, I would say that, you know, you had earlier this year the announcement by the Trump administration that they're cutting funding uh, because they feel that the countries are not doing enough to stop people from leaving their country. So we're going to cut funding. Right. so, I mean, to your question, what should the U.S. do? It's not let's not address or help these countries address the factors that are forcing their own people to flee. Right. Um, it's how do we, you know, help? How do we support those within country that are putting their lives at risk to bring about reforms? Right. How do we use also our 
diplomatic tools um, to support those efforts that are trying to get. So, I mean, I mean, this is really perverse, right? I mean, what you're describing is a situation where the Trump administration has both backed off a form of pressure that these governments really did not welcome to sort of clean up on corruption, but in its own mind is getting tough on them by removing material assistance, right? So in, instead of being both helpful but also a little pushy, we're going to now give them less but also not try to ask anything of them. I don't know how tough it is, yeah. considering <laughs> that if you look at the assistance, uh, most of it doesn't go to the central governments. Mm. Um, it goes to organizations, humanitarian groups, uh, religious groups, and uh, implementing agencies that mm -hmm. are carrying out the work. Um, so, I see. So, so the grants were built to go mostly right. I mean, to civil society. Yeah, or different. I mean, there are mm -hmm. only a small amount that goes to the central government. Mm. Um, you know, and to see the impact, um, because we've been talking right. so much about Guatemala, um, there was a, a report that um, came out last week by CICIG that showed that in the last several, you know, couple of years, because of all this backlash, mm -hmm. they went from having reduced impunity to 87 to having an increase now back to the levels of where it was before. On this trajectory, I mean, people are just going to keep leaving. Right. I mean, if 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 you know, conditions don't improve. And if people don't have a sense of hope right. that they can live a decent life, right. a secure life in their communities. Yeah, I mean, because it's a, I mean, it's a question both of the sort of absolute conditions, but also the directionality of change, right? I mean, 87% impunity is really bad, but it's lower than 95, right? I mean, that says to you, like maybe maybe I should stick around. I should I should I should work to further these improvements, right? And if things are if you have hope that things can improve, right? Then there's bigger likelihood that you would opt to stay. But if you if you've lost any sense, you know that the future is going to look any different. Businesses love data, like really love it. But is just having data enough? Yeah. Nope. Oh. Because the smart businesses, the really smart ones, use ZoomInfo. It leverages data to unlock useful insights. Insights so you know who to reach and how to reach them, letting you grow your business. So ask yourself, is your data insightful? Now it is. Unlock insights, engage customers, win faster at ZoomInfo.com. ZoomInfo, how business goes to market. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200 or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR and legal, can stay connected and move together as one towards shared company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team 
at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. So you're you're here in, in, in D.C. I mean, do you feel like, are there policymakers in the United States who get this? Like, is anything, you know, breakthrough in the government here to try to... Because it's bizarre to me that you have this sort of crisis rhetoric, right? I mean, this incredible level of anxiety about people from Central America trying to come to the United States and then so little um, engagement with what's actually happening in the region. I mean, I would say that, you know, there are many members of Congress Mm -hmm. um, that, um, you know, are concerned about the situation, Mm -hmm. that follow um, the situation, and that are trying to move uh, bipartisan measures, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to continue assistance. Mm -hmm. And how do you address, you know, these aid cuts and to ensure Mm -hmm. a focus on these different elements? Um, But I would say, you know, um, it's usually until you reach a crisis point that there's enough attention given Uh to Central America. Right. To address, you know, the factors that if you don't respond to them are just going to blow up and create, uh, you know, bigger political crises. Right. Um, so, okay. So, you know, before we wrap up, is there is there anything like what what should I have asked you? What, what do we miss here? Um, I mean, I just want to mention, um, you know, when you talk about migration is also yeah. the issue of internal displacement. Mm-hmm. Um, because while, you know, particularly from a U.S. point of view, there's a lot of focus on the number of Central Americans mm-hmm. that arrive at the border. You also see a lot of internal displacement. Mm-hmm. So in many cases, families opt to figure out um, within their own countries where they can find safety. And you have seen an increase of displacement. Um, is this is like people each, are moving around the lines their, of gang yeah, control? In their, in their own country trying mm-hmm. to find safety. So um, those have increased. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you do see that because of violence, um, mm-hmm. people have been forced to leave their home. And um, it's not necessarily the case that they write their decide, okay, I'm going to go sure. to the U.S., but some, you know, oftentimes they try to find another place to live. The internal displacement, right? I mean, this is a sign of how serious the the issue is. I mean, mo- moving to the United States is a drastic measure that a lot of people are not going to take. It's very dangerous. It's, it's very and, difficult. And, you know, if you use uh, a coyote, it's also right. costly. Right. So, um, you know, it's internal. There's also displacement to other countries, mm-hmm. uh, Mexico, but also Belize, Costa Rica, Panama, Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was actually a question I wanted to ask you is, is are these problems, because I know some people have, have gone to to the other countries in the region, are the problems themselves sort of spreading along with that, right? I mean, are we seeing uh, stability issues in, in Panama, Belize, as people move out? Um, I'm not as familiar with the situation in Belize. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I would say, you know, Nicaragua for different reasons going through a political crisis, and that's creating a lot of, um, I would say, pressure on Costa Rica because they have been receiving a number of Nicaraguans that are fleeing the political crisis, but also had been uh, receiving Central Americans from um, the Northern Triangle countries. Right, right, right. um, Creating a capacity issue, yeah. Right. So, I mean, it's as much as, you know, the United States is a much wealthier country than these other places and has more ability to to deal with people. Right, right. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Adriana Beltran uh, of the Washington Office on Latin America. Uh, it was a really great conversation. Um, th- thank you so much for, for joining us. I-, I hope to be able to, you know, do do more on uh, 
places outside our borders, uh, which is always a fascinating kind of subject. Um, so thanks, everybody. Thanks, of course, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And uh, The Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Before Zoom Info, business wins took a lot of time, energy, and patience. But today, Zoom Info aligns your sales and marketing teams, identifies ideal customers faster, and automates your go-to-market strategy. So you can scale up and get on the fast track to marketplace domination. And that's how winners win. Unlock insights, engage customers, win faster at ZoomInfo.com. ZoomInfo, how business goes to market.